Hello again. Thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. It's always good to have your company and I hope you're well. Coming up on today's program, we'll be looking at geysers on Enceladus. The James Webb Space Telescope has uh, had another look at them uh, after they've been previously seen elsewhere and they've found out a bit more about them and it's pretty amazing. Also, a star that may not be a normal star. This one could be a dark matter star, as a matter of fact. Uh, we'll get stuck into that. Uh, we'll follow up a couple of things that came up in the last program, just some questions that uh, needed to be um, uh, investigated further. And we will be looking at uh, a white dwarf age issue, according to Rusty. Uh, we talked recently about Saturn's ring rain. Uh, David wants to bring that one up again, as well as his lunch. And Jeff uh, is asking about what the view would be like from a black hole if we could possibly get inside one. Uh, would be tunnel vision at the very least, I imagine. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me once again is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I am quite well. Back to um, back to work this week, back to normal, back to business, back to everything that I had <laughs> forgotten how to do yes. <laughs> uh, after a month off. Yep, that's what happens, isn't it? <laughs> Does indeed. You come back and it's all still there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's better than it all not being there at all. <laughs> indeed, yes. Um, it's good yeah. to have good people that can back us up, that, that always makes a big difference. So you come back and you go, well, that's a relief. Nothing's broken, nothing's missing, nothing's wrong. So um, it's always nice when you can rely on people, and that's Good. what we've got. Good to hear. And, um, yeah, plenty of uh, things to talk about, so let's get stuck into it straight away. And this first story I find really exciting because um, there's a lot of attention being paid to Enceladus for all sorts of reasons, um, notwithstanding the potential for life. But uh, these incredible geysers that have been recorded previously have been seen again, this time by the James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah, so this is really quite exciting news, and it um, highlights once again the the capabilities of the James Webb Telescope as uh, as a tool for science that's sort of par excellence. Mm. Um, it's uh, the um, observations have been made of Saturn's moon Enceladus. Now we haven't yet seen those observations, uh, so I haven't seen any images, and that's probably partly because uh, the research paper that's describing this work is still pending. So it hasn't yet appeared in the scientific press. Uh, and I guess the people who are responsible for it uh, are essentially, uh, uh, you know, keeping their powder dry uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to basically um, stop, uh, you know, stop the, um, the, the, the media getting hold of it before they've actually published it. Yeah, that happens. Uh, uh, it, it, which, it, which does happen. And you know that as a media person. <laughs> I've never done it myself. Gosh, ne never, well, never break an embargo. Break an embargo, no. And uh, I have to say, I have neither, because I get all these things that are embargoed. Mm. And I too don't uh, break them just because it's uh, the wrong thing to do. 
So, uh, yes, I think that's what's happening there. But this is uh, scientists at the Goddard Space Flight Center uh, who have presented these results actually at a conference um, in uh, the Space Telescope Science Institute, which is in Baltimore, place I visited a long time ago. So, uh, going back to the matter in hand, uh, Saturn's moon Enceladus, we've known since the flybys of the Cassini spacecraft uh, in the early 2000s, yeah. I think it was as early as 2005, that the uh, the, the, the ice plumes being emitted from Enceladus's south pole uh, uh, have been were discovered then. Uh, in fact, what first hit the headlines, I don't know whether you remember this, because I'm sure you, you and I talked about it, but there were these things near the south pole of Enceladus, which were markings that were described as tiger stripes, because oh, yes, uh, they, right. they, do, they do look a bit like tiger stripes. Yeah. And then it was discovered that, that there were actually cracks through which... Um, what probably started off as water, but as soon as it hit the vacuum of space, became ice crystals, mm. and that's what were being observed by the Cassini spacecraft. And in fact, Cassini made several uh, passes through those ice crystals so that using the equipment that it had on board, it could detect some of the chemicals that were were in them, uh, principally H2O, so water there, but also molecular hydrogen, and I think some silicates as well were detected, which... Um, tended to uh, give you the uh, insight that the water that was underneath the ice had been in contact with rock before it was spat out uh, to, to form the ice crystals. And the molecular hydrogen was interpreted as being possibly um, symptomatic of the fact that there were these um, deep... Um, um, well, it'll come to me in a minute. Uh, the 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 black smokers—that's the yes. expression I was looking for—down uh, on the floor of Enceladus's ocean, the subice ocean, that there were um, basically hydrothermal vents in the ocean floor. So um, that was all very exciting. But of course, with Cassini's mission coming to, coming to an end in 2017, all that stopped, and so further research was not possible until now. Yay. Uh, when the James Webb Telescope has been directed at Enceladus, and and they've kind of hit pay dirt because they've uh, discovered a, a an ice plume that is far bigger than any of the ones that were observed by Enceladus, and that sort of makes you wonder why that might be. Is there a, a you know one of the cracks, one of the tiger stripes has opened up a bit to allow more water through? Or uh, is it something to do with the gravitational pull of Saturn? What's happening here? And so that's one of the things that is being studied at the moment. Uh, apparently, this ice plume extended quite a lot further than the diameter of Enceladus itself, which yes. is 500 kilometers. Yeah, that's one, uh, that's one of the things they've discovered um, as a consequence of this observation is how big these geysers are. Yeah, and this, the, I, I remember um, from the, that time an image of Enceladus, which uh, was taken when El Enceladus was backlit, so the sun was behind Enceladus. Yeah. But you could see that there, the plumes of stuff that were coming off Enceladus were actually feeding into Saturn's E-ring. The E-ring is one of the diffuse rings outside the you know, the, the main ring system. And that was great because that answered the puzzle of where the E-ring came from. It actually comes from uh, ice crystals that, uh, yeah, that, that, that generated by Enceladus. So all that's 
sort of backstory. But we now we have these new observations, and in principle, we've got a new way uh, of of uh, you know investigating these things because uh, the James Webb is equipped with uh, very sensitive infrared detectors, spectrometers, and things of that sort. It's possible that we might get some new insights into what chemical elements and perhaps even molecules are contained within those ice plumes. Uh, although I think um, the, uh, uh, the, the, um, you know, the, 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 the bottom line really in the end is going to be sending a spacecraft to Enceladus. Yes. Um, the, just um, going back to what we knew these jets contained, We've got uh, uh, quite a, a big list in addition to the ones that I mentioned earlier: methane, carbon dioxide, and ammonia. And these are, of course, all organic uh, uh, mole- molecules, molecules containing carbon, and and, uh, and babelfish, uh, probably babelfish as well. Yes, uh, if you need to translate from um, you know one language to another. Mm. Uh, anyway, it, you know it could be. It, it might be even more exciting than Babelfish, is that, if anything like that could be possible. Yes. Uh, because that methane could turn out to be uh, from methanogenic organisms. We don't know that, but all of this st- still highlights uh, uh, Enceladus as a as a fantastic target for um, further exploration. And a couple of things come to mind there. Uh, a, a mission which is proposed called the Enceladus Orbilander, and uh, the, that name tells you what it's going to do. It will orbit uh, the moon uh, if, it, if this goes ahead for about six months uh, and actually flying through those ice uh, ice plumes and then land and look at the exact details of the surface. Um, it probably would not... Uh, try and penetrate the the ice, though. That's the province of a of one that you and I have spoken about before. Yes, um, uh, something called eel, which is a bit like an eel. Some something called a snake robot. Uh, eel is an acronym for Exobiology Extant Life Surveyor, mm. uh, or eels actually. And uh, one of the brains, uh, one of the um, principal, um, you know, boffins behind that is uh, Linda Spilker, who was with us a few years ago to, the, to give the Alison Levick lecture. lecture. The uh, uh, Linda Spilker being the Cassini, the Cassini mission scientist, so very, very well equipped to propose new missions. And I think Ilza was one of the ones she was involved with. Yeah, if that doesn't work, of course, the, uh, the backup mission is the Black and Decker mission, which... <laughs> uh, yes, that's right. Or if you really need it, the... Uh, the uh, JCB or the Caterpillar mission with uh, the heavy lifting stuff. Yes. Or the Ryobi mission, any of yes. those, any of those that can drill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, if, we... you go, if you go with Ryobi, you, you, you only need one set of batteries and that's right. refit all your different. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. I actually had a, um, uh, I've got a Ryobi leaf blower and um, the, the leaf blower died before the battery did. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. It is, isn't it? Quite yeah, surprised. I was still, yeah. still very much alive, but being tall, I have to have mm. a cardboard tube on the end to yeah. extend it down to uh, blow away the leaves. Anyway, that's a different story. It is indeed. <laughs> I, I must say, um, whoever thought of Enceladus or Belanda, yeah. I mean, gee, come on. Couldn't you come up with something better than that? I, th- I think in the end it would have, uh, would have a nicer name. But yeah, I, like you, I'm finding this really exciting that yeah. the, the Webb telescope now can and turn its uh, very substantial capabilities onto a moon-like Enceladus. 
Um, certainly nowhere near the same resolution as we had from uh, from the Cassini mission, but lots to find out nevertheless. Yes, and, and there's so much attention being paid to Enceladus and its um, similar cousin of Jupiter, which is, I'm stretching to remember the name of it. Hang on, hang on. Uh, come on, come on. Think, think beginning with T. <laughs> yes, T-I. No. <laughs> no. Texas Instruments. No, uh, <laughs> TI is uh, is Titan. Oh, I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking of oh, the, the other ice. Moon. Oh, uh, this this. Uh, oh, well, Titan's definitely an ice moon. But yeah. Other notion. I mean, there are the other ice moons that we really know a lot about are Europa, Ganymede, Europa, Callisto. Yes, around mm. uh, around Jupiter. Yes. Um, all all prime candidates for t- potential life. Yeah. Exactly. What yeah. kind of life we don't know, but if we can get up there and find it and study it and see what it's made up of and whether or not it's the same stuff as us, that would be really interesting. Exactly. Because if we found life there, uh, living organisms there, it would suggest that wherever you've got the raw materials for life and uh, the right environment, you're going to get it. Mm. Um, and interesting it stuff. Cha- change the answer to the Drake equation. Uh, that's correct. It would. Yeah, it would indeed. And that, yeah. We're all hoping for that. I... The the Drake equation, though, um, well, it would. It certainly puts one further input into the Drake equation. Drake equation. Point. It doesn't give you the answer because that's all about intelligent life. Yes. Uh, uh, it would be astonishing though if we found vertebrates or something with some kind of intelligence. I keep saying it. it. I keep saying it. Krill. Krill. Yeah, that's right. That's hyper-intellectual krill. Hypies. I'm sure they're out there somewhere. (laughs) All right. Uh, If if you want to follow up this story, uh, as Fred said, they haven't uh, released the data yet, but uh, I'm sure it will come to a a website near you in the not-too-distant future. This week's episode of Space Nuts is brought to you by CuriosityStream, which uh, is a great place to find and watch documentaries covering all sorts of topics, science, history, technology, nature, travel, and so much more. I personally love watching uh, science and astronomy documentaries, but uh, I also have uh, a very keen interest in, um, in conflict, particularly the First World War. And I logged in the other day uh, just, to, just to test the service out and instantly found a, a fabulous World War I documentary series which I am uh, working my way through at the moment. And uh, I must confess, it's uh, it's just so great to be able to go to one place that covers all the topics I love. Uh, I think I'm really going to get a heck of a lot out of this. And you can too, because uh, it's as easy as logging on as a Space Nuts listener and signing up for Curiosity Stream. All these documentaries in the same place, uh, it's uh, it's really easy. You can do it through your TV, uh, through uh, all those services, Roku, Xbox, smart TVs, as I said, uh, Apple TV, Amazon Fire, and so many more. It's available globally, so it doesn't matter where you are. You can take advantage of Curiosity Stream and uh, all, all those incredible topics, and they add new shows every week. Now, as a Space Nuts listener, there is a special um offer to you. If you sign up uh, now through this special URL, you'll get 25% off. CuriosityStream.com slash Space Nuts for unlimited access to the world's top docos and non-fiction series uh, as a, a Space Nuts listener. 
And the uh, promo code, by the way, is SPACENUTS. So click on the link, curiositystream.com slash SPACENUTS. Use the promo code SPACENUTS for a saving of 25% right now with our sponsor, Curiosity Stream. Okay, we checked all four systems and King with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, to another matter, that of dark matter. We get so many questions about this, uh, so many questions about black holes. Anything that's got darkness involved is obviously of great interest in the astronomical world and uh, to the layman too. But uh, this is a really interesting story about a, a star system that they've known about for a while. But now a couple of um, astronomers uh, or space scientists uh, are, are saying, hang on a minute. This might not be what you think it is. This could be a dark matter star. Indeed, that's that's right. Um, so let's do the backstory. This uh, comes about from observations made by Gaia, uh, which is uh, a, an astrometric spacecraft. So Gaia is basically something that uh, measures with incredible accuracy uh, the positions of stars in the sky, in other words, their right ascension and declination, the equivalent of latitude and longitude on Earth. Um, and uh, this this Gaia system is so accurate uh, that it basically uh, allows us not just to, to measure the positions of stars, but to measure their positions uh, changing over time. And so you can basically look for the motion of stars. For example, if a star is orbiting something else, mm. uh, you will see that motion uh, from the measurements made by Gaia. And that's what's happened here, uh, in that a star which is uh, nearly the same mass of the, as the sun, it is a sun-like star, uh, so it's something like 93% of the mass of the sun, uh, but also has similar chemical properties to the sun. So it's uh, it's got similar what we call metallicities, the amount of, uh, of material other than hydrogen that's in its atmosphere. And you can determine that from the spectrum of the star. Uh, but uh, the Gaia uh, measurements revealed that it's actually orbiting something else, uh, which is invisible. And uh, you can look at the analysis of the orbit and you can work out that it's the thing that the star is orbiting is around 11 times the mass of the sun. Uh, and uh, the star orbits that at something like the distance that Mars is from our from our sun. Okay. Uh, so it's a, you know an interesting scenario. And I guess the first thing that you would think of um, is that it's a black hole because eleven solar masses is kind of in the regime that uh, that black holes fit. Uh, it would be a quiescent black hole, and that's to say one that is not gobbling up its uh, the, the gas and dust in its surroundings and causing that to uh, to form an accretion disk which emits light and x-rays and things of that sort. So it's a black hole that would not be revealed by, by anything other than something going around it. Um, but uh, there is a problem with that and it's because a sun-like star, which probably would be typically about the same age as our sun, four and a half billion years, yeah. Um, would, uh, in order to have survived that long, uh, would would be unlikely to have been uh, in the vicinity uh, either of the black hole or of its predecessor. So the, the thinking is that this black hole would have come from 
uh, a, you know, a massive star that collapsed at the end of its life, formed a supernova, which in itself might get rid of the sun-like star, uh, but um, but but you know that that uh, that then continued to exist as a black hole. And the problem is, um, it, it it seems that you need to really tinker around with the parameters to make this possibility work. Yeah. And so the authors of this work have suggested uh, that this is so unlikely. Uh, that maybe there is a different explanation. And what they have suggested is that this is something called a boson star. Okay. Uh, now, bosons are, are the force carriers like, um, like uh, photons. Uh, the, uh, the electromagnetic force is carried by a boson called a photon. And there's something known as the Higgs boson, which we, we all know about, other yep. bosons. Uh, include the uh, the strong and weak nuclear force uh, forces there to other sorts. So, a star that's made of these things um, is an exotic sort of star. Uh, but that what they're suggesting is that this is a kind of boson that's not already known. Uh, in other words, it's not made of photons because that will be light. Uh, it's something else, and um, the best candidate for what they're hypothesizing is probably something called an axion, uh, which is a candidate for dark matter. So uh, they're suggesting that it, this is just a clump of dark matter particles, which are not switched on into a star because they don't do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, it's it's massive enough that we've got this, uh, you know, this um, uh, uh, other star going around it. Uh, it's rather an interesting paper. They... Um, I actually had a look at the. Let me see if I can find uh, the paper again. I uh, just here we are. Uh, it is uh, their paper is called. Come on, where are you? Here you are. We're going it's well today. A, that, well, I know I am. Yeah, We're doing it all on the fly. Sorry to our listeners and viewers. This is the this is the reality of of space nuts. Um, the paper is called a sun-like star orbiting a boson star. Okay, and. Um, let me just read it because it actually is written in plain English, which actually tells it like it is. Uh, the high precision astrometric mission Gaia recently reported the remarkable discovery of a sun like star closely orbiting a dark object. Um, while the plausible explanation for the central dark object is a black hole, the evolutionary mechanism leading to the formation of such a two-body system is highly challenging. That's kind of what I just said, yeah. uh, but perhaps more succinctly. Here, we challenge the scenario of a central black hole and show that the observed orbital dynamics can be explained under fairly general assumptions if the central dark object is a stable clump of bosonic particles of spin zero or spin one known as a boson star. Work that one out. Yeah. We, we further explain how future astrometric me measurements of, a, of similar systems uh, will provide an exciting opportunity to probe the fundamental nature of compact objects and test compact alternatives to black hole uh, black holes. In other words, they're they're throwing the you know the gauntlet out there. They're saying, well, maybe what all the objects that we think are black holes aren't. Yeah, that they're just piles of dark matter particles and. Uh, and not black holes at all. Huh? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I believe that their the, uh, research is yet to be peer-reviewed. Is that Indeed, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So and, it's, it's... and they're, they're throwing it open for further study. And, and they I think they even say um, it's unlikely that this actually is a boson star, and they're urging 
follow-up observations. So, it, it, yeah, they're just basically saying, look, this is what we've found. This is what we think it could be, but it could be something else, uh, and we, we really need to take a closer look at this. Uh, exactly so. That's ex exactly right. Yeah. Um, so, so, um, so, yeah, just something that needs uh, further further explanation. And the work was done by two researchers, uh, Dr. Pombo and Dr. Saltast, and I'm not sure where they are, um, but they have Greek names, so maybe that's a clue. <laughs> uh, they could be in Melbourne, if that's the case. That's um, also true. Hang on, yeah. let's check. See where well, they're... Melbourne is the biggest Greek city outside of Greece in the world. It is. That's, that's correct. Yes, absolutely right. And I have enjoyed Greek food in Melbourne. Um, uh, from yes. a, from a genuine family <laughs> Greek restaurant, so it was genuine Greek food. It was that's, damn nice that's too. Excellent. It's good good to know because that's kind of sort of what you need what you need to know when you go travelling. Yes. <laughs> mm. um, I I one thing that's popped into my head about this is you know, we've talked in the past about how dark matter is probably not well named and dark energy is even has even got a worse name because it's not that. Uh, are we walking down that path again by calling this a dark matter star? Because it's not a star. Yes, that's right. It's a clump. Yeah, it? so it's a dark matter. You could almost call it a dark matter nebula because nebulae are sort of clouds of gas. Um, very, yes, very interesting uh, uh, terminology there. Um, maybe it's... Uh, the sort of dark, the equivalent of a, a dark matter star. So, what is it? It's a, a dark matter lump or something. Of a dark sort. matter blob. Um, yeah, um, a dark matter blob. That that could be it. Mm -hmm. um, um, they these two researchers, by the way, are at the Czech Academy of Sciences. So I was wrong there. No. Oh well. So was I. Not in <laughs> Melbourne. Not in Melbourne. That's right. <laughs> Um, okay, so th this is a, um, a a bit of a new idea and a new concept, and it's a, certainly yeah. a bit of a curveball in the scheme of things. So, when, when, when you know, from your perspective as somebody who's been in the industry for so long, what happens now? Where they, they've thrown this one out there, is someone going to take the bait and and maybe come up with an alternative theory or what? Uh, but yes, very likely. Um, I mean, in in this particular case, uh, what you've got is is a you know a, a sample of one, um, a, something that doesn't look as though it's going to be a black hole, but is something else. I think what will happen is that people will maybe trawl through the Gaia data with a bit more um, of a of a background in looking for this kind of object, mm. uh, and dig up more of these normal stars orbiting dark spaces uh it has happened before you and i have in fact spoken uh, about um people finding black holes because of the orbits of the objects around them but it's usually been fairly unequivocal that it's a black hole um and it's not a kind of normal sun-like star that's orbiting around it in fact i think we talked about the dark what was it the the black hole police i think they were called these people who tried to debunk uh the idea of that all these things are black holes yeah um so uh, yes, there'll be more observations, hopefully more examples dug up, and a lot of thinking by the theoretical astronomers who will try and make it all work in terms of 
uh, you know, what the real, realistic scenarios are. Yes, very interesting to watch and hopefully we'll have more on that in the not too distant future. If you want to uh, find out more about it in the meantime, uh, you'll easily find it on the web at the livescience.com website or space.com. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, uh, before we get stuck into questions for this week, some follow-up. Uh, Ross uh, asked us last week about the brightest of all time in terms of an explosion. And um, oh, I was a bit off track with what I thought he was talking about, but um, we've, uh, we've, you've, you've got some more information on the boat. Yes, the boat. So, um, yeah, we, we, we got confused as you... Well, I would do with, with two, no, no, I don't know two 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 acronyms with different meanings. The yes. boat meaning the brightest of all time, and the boat meaning the biggest of all time. And what we talked about last week was the the, the biggest of all time, uh, whereas the brightest of all time turns out to be a gamma ray burst, uh, which was detected last year, and has copious amounts of energy. It is the brightest of all time. And I think uh, I think it might have been Russ rather than Russ. I'm not sure, but Russ's question. Uh, was um, he had heard that uh, there may be sort of insights into new physics coming from what needs to be explained there. Mm. And th that essentially uh, is confirmed by my reading of the situation that the amount of energy that's involved, uh, even you know, if you allow for the fact that this gamma ray burst is formed by a burst of energy that's direct, directed towards Earth, uh, and it, it is highly collimated, that means it's a very parallel beam of radiation that you're seeing, uh, that to form that, uh, that there is uh, there is difficulty in accounting for that observation with what we know about physics as it stands. But you can bet your life that somebody will. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the, you know, the theoretical astronomers will get their brains around it and say, oh, yeah, we should have, noted, we should have expected this, but we didn't. <laughs> Well, I, I think when it comes to astronomy, always expect the unexpected. Uh, indeed, that's mm. exactly right. Especially when you're um, doing podcasts like this one, because it's always something unexpected. Absolutely. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, Russ, so uh, watch this space again, is what we're saying. Uh, and Clyde was uh, asking about dark matter black holes. Uh, was he asking whether or not they could exist? He was. That's right. And Which I, is interesting, considering we just talked about a dark matter blob. Yes, yes that's right. Mm. So yeah, it's a nice segue from that, which we completely failed to make. But never mind. Yeah. Um, so um, that was my fault. Clyde uh, um, asked whether you could have dark matter black holes, and I sort of waffled about this to say, yes, it's possibly true because the you know the the driving force behind a black hole is gravity, and dark matter experiences gravity. But, but there are issues, uh, and it's all to do with the way that we know black holes are formed, either by, um, you know, by an exploding star of one sort or another, or, or just the direct collapse of a, of a cloud of gas. And it turns out that in order to make the black hole, uh, you have to have interactions between uh, particles. And you, in particular, you have to have things like friction, things like electromagnetic phenomena, yeah. uh, in order to make that collapse take place. And the dark matter particles, whatever they are, do not have that. They don't have any other interaction. They only interact 
gravitationally. And so the uh, th thinking is that there would be no such thing as a dark matter black hole. Oh, yeah. Okay. There you go, Clutch. Um, surprised me too. <laughs> yes. Until someone proves there is one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Somebody, somebody's sure to come along. Yes. All right. There you go, Clyde. Uh, hopefully that um, gives you just a, a, a fraction more information. But um, yes, yeah, it's not much. It, is it? It's a bit of a bit of a work in progress. Uh, let's go to our questions, and uh, I just want to say thanks to Rusty, uh, one of our regulars uh, from Donnybrook in Western Australia, for sending me this Scorpio pic. He took a, a photo of uh, constellation Scorpio the other day and sent it through. He's, um, he's, it looks rather spectacular. Got, must have some great sky in Donnybrook. Uh, has Rusty? They must have. Um, the constellation is Scorpius. Scorpius. All right. Yeah, Scorpio is what the astrologers talk about. Oh, of course. Sorry about that. Yes, I know how you feel about that. Uh, but this is not about Scorpius. This uh, is about uh, white dwarf stars. But um, he's taking it a bit further, Fred, and he's questioning astronomers all over the world with this one. Hey, Fred and Andrew. It's Rusty in Donnybrook. And I have a curly one for you regarding white dwarves we've recently discovered a couple in the milky way that are nine and ten billion years old and they're not the oldest uh, they have found one in another galaxy 11 and a half billion years old its mass is around about five point uh, five five or 55 percent of the sun's mass and the sun is expected to lose some mass and uh, when it becomes a white dwarf in another 5 billion years, be 55, 53% uh, of its current mass. Now, the sun is a 10 billion year life in the main sequence before becoming a white dwarf. And these white dwarves are around 10 billion years old. That means that the universe must be at least 20 billion years old. Uh, would you care to explain why that wouldn't be the case? Mmm, rusty. Oh, <laughs> stirring the pot, my friend. Stirring the pot, that's right. Yes. Well, the universe can't be 20 billion years old because everything we know about it says it's 13.8 billion years old, and that's a very self-consistent picture. So there's something wrong with the interpretation there. And mm. my guess is, uh, and I don't really know enough about the evolution of normal stars uh, at the, you know, of, of various masses. I, I should do, actually, because uh, that's one of the fields that I've specialised in. But I will check up on this. But the, there must be quicker ways uh, of producing a white dwarf than just doing what the sun will do to produce its white dwarf, which yeah. uh, um, Rusty's right. It, it will be kind of about half a solar mass thereabouts when it... Uh, when it when it's finished blowing off its outer layers, so white dwarfs I should have explained are the the end product of uh, normal stellar evolution. A star when it runs out of hydrogen fuel goes through various uh, what we call old age phenomena, uh, but eventually ends up with the former nucleus of the star or the core of the star be, becoming a white dwarf, which is electron degenerate. It's only the electrons that are stopping it from collapsing further into a neutron star or a black hole. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, the interesting thing about white dwarfs is that, uh, that we have an upper limit for their mass beyond which they explode, and that's 
why we know the brightness of type 1a supernovae because they're exploding white dwarfs at a mass of 1.4 times the mass of the sun which they attain by accreting other stuff uh, that's the the higher mass end of white dwarfs we're talking about the low mass end of white dwarfs um, and um, rusty i will indeed follow up on your question to find out what the mechanisms are for forming these low mass white dwarfs and whether we can do it in you know maybe a couple of billion years rather than 10 billion years. Yes. <laughs> I put an asterisk next to Rusty because that's another follow-up we've got to do. Yeah. Well, we, we've, we've got a good track record on follow-ups for the last week. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for the last six years, I doubt. Two, but... two out of two. <laughs> well, two out of 100 for the last six years. <laughs> but two out of two for the last week. Indeed. Thank you, Rusty. Um, so we'll get back to you on that one. Uh, let's go to David now, who's uh, well. We've got got another focus on Saturn. Saturn's been big news the last couple of weeks. G'day, Fred, Andrew, David here from Queensland. Just a quick question. May have a quick answer. Um, listening to the podcast uh, regarding Saturn and the ring rain falling uh, to the planet. Uh, Fred obviously mentioned, uh, as we know, the planet is the most oblate. Uh, perhaps it is the deposition of material from the ring rain uh, increasing the equator, or is it just a factor of its uh, gravitational spin? Thanks very much. Love the show. See you, guys. See you, David. Thank you. Uh, all right. There's a, there's a theory. Uh, yeah, it's a great suggestion, David. Um, but I think, um, <laughs> to quote the time-honoured phrase, I think you'll find. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so polite, isn't it? I uh, know. It's, it's, it's when people are being pedantic. Uh, all the time. I think you'll find. No, that wasn't, mm. that wasn't written in 1741. It was 1745. Anyway, um, I think you'll find <laughs> that um, the, um, the mass of the rings, you know, even if you pile the whole of the ring system onto Saturn's equator, it wouldn't make any difference to the the blankness of the planet ah. um, because the amount of material in it is is very, very small compared with the mass of the planet. So um, Saturn's a blankness, uh, which is explained just by, you know, normal normal physics, the physics of rotating bodies, is due to Saturn's um, rapid rotation speed mm. and uh, the fact that, um, and, and probably things like its density as well, uh, because... Um, uh, you know, you can get things that rotate faster, but don't go quite as oblate. It's it's so oblate. The oblateness is the uh, the swelling around the waist. The fact that that the the globe is slightly flattened. Actually, well, all the planets are oblate. The Earth included. It's yes. Flatter, flatter Actually, if you, if you look at the numbers, it's um, it, it it might surprise people. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yes, definitely. Uh, I can't. It's tens of kilometers, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's yeah. quite a, quite a bit. Quite a lot. Um. So I think the answer is, uh, it's a nice suggestion, uh, but uh, we think that is probably not enough to make any difference to the oblateness of Saturn. Mm, okay. There you go, David. Simple. You did think it would be an easy answer, quick answer. So, yeah, he got that right. Um, <laughs> the big... question is, did I? <laughs> uh, yeah. Of course, well, you know, it's astronomy, so who knows? Who knows? Who knows? And uh, finally, we're going to hear from Jeff, who's got a what-if question for us. Hi, this is Jeff from Los Angeles. I have a question for you guys. If it was possible 
to go into a black hole and survive that, go beyond the event horizon. And I know it's not possible, but if it was possible and one were to look back on the universe, what would they see? Oh, um, mm. that's a good question. Oh, he um, caught me off guard. He's finished. Yes, Jeff. Thank you. Um, <laughs> sorry, Jeff. Uh, sorry, Andrew. Yeah. Um, well, my thinking is nothing, but I don't know. Um, you know, putting spaghettification aside or linguinization, as some people have decided it should be. Um, yeah. Let's just assume for a moment you remain intact, you go into the black hole, and you want to look out. Well, nothing escapes a black hole, so I don't... Yeah, it's hard to answer the question. But stuff goes into a black hole. Yes. So photons can go into a black hole. But I think you're right, though. I think it's dark inside a black hole. Mm. Um, be, and uh, within the... Oh, sorry, not inside a black hole, but within the event horizon. Uh because the, 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 you know, the fact that um, stuff is, is definitely crossing that boundary uh, to be gobbled up by the black hole, and photons must as well, uh, what the viewpoint from within the black hole itself is, uh, is uh, something that I think is dark. And I think it's because uh, the... Basically, you know, the the photons themselves are swallowed up by the black hole uh, because uh, there's nothing can exceed the speed of light. I'm, I'm actually, uh, my logic here is a little bit sus because I'm kind of thinking in vague circles, but I might um, I might take, give some more sober thought to this. And that's <laughs> a follow-up. But, but yeah, I'll follow it up. But my guess is... Um, <laughs> My guess is it's we're going to do a whole show of follow-ups in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah. We, well, that's right. We could do that. Uh, I think inside the black hole's dark. Yeah, uh, but I'll need to check the physics of that. Unless you take a torch <laughs> or a flashlight, if you're in America, yeah, you see the, the switch your flashlight on, and it's all gone. the photons immediately get sucked into it into the black hole. Yeah, uh, as well as your flashlight and you, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I, yeah. Now it said we weren't going there. You've you, you're remaining We've, intact. Yes, but yes, right. yeah. You couldn't use a a flashlight or a torch in in a black hole because the light would gone. Um, yeah, not a very coherent answer, Jeff. I apologise for that. But watch this space because we're getting really good at following up. Yes, yes. There's another two we've got to do for next week. <laughs> That's good. Could be a whole new segment this week. Yeah. On, this week on follow up with Fred. <laughs> mm. <laughs> All right, um, that exhausts this week's questions, but don't forget if you have questions for us, send them through via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io and just click on the um, AMA link at the top of the page and you can send us a text or audio question there or you can click on the link on the right-hand side of the home page. As long as you've got a device with a microphone, you are set. And don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. And I will remind social media users, particularly those who use LinkedIn, which I called LinkedIn for many years before someone told me, what are you talking about? LinkedIn? I never I never put it together, Fred, honestly. I looked at it over and over and I thought, what is this LinkedIn thing? I love it. True story. I love it. It was yeah. ages before I finally 
Got it right. <laughs> LinkedIn. Uh, we're on LinkedIn these days. If you would like to follow us on LinkedIn, uh, just uh, do a search for Bytes.com, B-I-T-E-S-Z.com. That's our parent organization, Bytes.com. And uh, we need 150 followers. And once we get 150 followers, followers on LinkedIn, we will be able to stream live, which we want to do. We're doing it on as many platforms as possible. So uh, LinkedIn is one we want to add to our repertoire. So that's um, that's where we are at with our social media, as well as Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and uh, some others, one others, one others. That's good, isn't it? Uh, one or two others. Um, but yes, uh, LinkedIn, if you're a LinkedIn user, uh, check us out, bytes.com. Fred, we have... So, go on, sorry. Suggestion for our follow-up, uh, the name of our follow-up segment. Uh-oh, space... Space nuts, the questions they dare not answer. <laughs> that could work. That could work, couldn't it? Yeah, could work very well. That's like a real thing. Sorry, Andrew, you were about to wrap up. That's okay. Fred, we've reached the end of the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure, especially when things keep going as they have done for the last five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when you've got to reach a certain time frame, you you do a radio trick. It's yes. just called, you know, stretching well, out. The the, the, the keeping going I was referring to was the technology, Andrew. Uh, you see, it's gone so well you've forgotten. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I just didn't want to dare hex <laughs> us with another dropout. No, I've probably done it already. Yeah, maybe <laughs> so. Mm. All right. Thank you, Fred. We'll catch you next week. Sounds great. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. And thanks to Hugh in the studio for reasons I cannot explain. But thanks anyway. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you on the very next episode. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.